physics math the uncertainties are lesser in economics math the uncertainty is basically human beings the biggest assumption that economics relies on is the assumption that human beings are rational but that's not true we know that there are a lot of irrationalities that exist that makes economics not so right all the time hi friends hello and welcome to the nails and hammers podcast our guest for today is prithvi kothamarti who is a behavioral science lead at grab we talk about her career journey understand what behavioral science is all about how prithvi goes about solving problems in her day to day life and finally talk about the intersection of behavioral science and technology it's time to listen and learn hi prithvi welcome to the nails and hammers podcast so can you share a bit about where did you grow up and where did you go to school hi very excited to be here so i grew up in delhi did my dad schooling in delhi my dad was posted there but i'm actually from the south of india mm-hmm. but because i grew up in delhi i called delhi home now i did my schooling there i did my engineering there as well and i also did my mba from fms delhi and then after that i moved to bombay where i worked for a few years and i lived in bangalore for a few years and then i did another masters this was in london and then i moved to singapore so that's where i am now so you did your engineering first and then you did your mba so what motivated you to do an mba i don't think in india people do an mba because they're motivated yeah. they do it because everybody does it so mm-hmm. engineering and mba is probably the safest line that anybody would choose yeah. so, like, i think people first do engineering and then they figure out what do they want to do with things in life yeah yeah, yeah. So how was the FMS experience like? FMS was very interesting for me. I think for me it was the time where I discovered my love for marketing and for presentations and that was the time when I actually got out and you know spoke publicly in a lot of places and mm-hmm. it gave me the confidence that I needed to get into the corporate world. So I actually really enjoyed my time at FMS. Mm-hmm. And then you worked at Mahindra for like 4 years and yeah. uh, what made you do a career switch and get a degree in behavioral science so at mahindra i was initially in a strategy role so the group company has a lot of sectors so i was looking at a few of them and that was an interesting role but as a part of that i also co-founded a startup within the mahindra group so this was like an uber for tractors so i was running marketing for that and while i was doing that i spent a lot of my time in rural india speaking to farmers and what seemed like such an obvious solution to them that you can now rent a tractor was actually not so easily welcomed by farmers so that actually got me thinking about consumer behavior and why do people behave the way they do and how can we actually do marketing the right way if we understood consumer behavior better so that's what got me into behavioral science so then i started reading more about it and that intrigued me a lot so then i decided to quit my job and do another masters in behavioral science i did that and then after that i came here so did you like read books and stuff or? yeah i read a lot of books or a lot of talks and in general i found the subject very intriguing but i wasn't sure how do i actually start applying this and i didn't know if i had all the tools to start doing this the right way so that's when i thought it might help to do a masters so what exactly is behavioral science So behavioral science is basically a subject that deals with understanding how people think. So typically in any behavioral science terms you'll hear the word system 1 and system 2. So basically that says that our brain has two ways of thinking. 
if i ask you what's 10 into 5 you just instantly know the answer if i make an angry face you know i'm angry if something's coming in your way you know you have to move all that is very instinctive and intuitive to you so that is the system one part of our brain which is basically very fast instinctive uses a lot of heuristics and makes quick decisions for you so that's one part of the brain the second part of the brain is system 2 where basically you make a lot of rational decisions and you're thinking through things so i ask you what's 343 into 257 you're going to take your time to think about that typically what happens is both these systems exist in our brain in most of our day to day decisions system 1 is the one that takes the lead so for most decisions you don't actually think too much you just make quick decisions and system 2 kicks in when it is actually required to so what behavioral science does is it understands how system 1 thinks and then it uses that information to nudge people towards certain behaviors a simple mm-hmm. example would be people generally just take whatever is in the aisle line in supermarkets because they don't want to spend the time to think about things so if you want people to eat healthy you would typically just replace everything from the aisle level uh, you replace all the snacks at aisle level with fruits because you know you want people to eat healthy people will keep doing what they're doing because they're habituated to that but now instead of snacks they are actually eating something healthy so system one here means like amygdala and prefrontal cortex which is like the fast brain yeah. which thinks in the concept of fight or flight the exactly yeah it uses a lot of heuristics and sometimes biases to come to certain conclusions mm-hmm. so how do you go about solving a given problem so typically what we would do is we would look at the existing behavior and we try and understand why the behavior exists the way it does then we do something like a behavioral audit so you look at all kinds of barriers and biases that exist in that process why are people behaving the way they behave some of it is existing knowledge some of it you might come to know through experiments some of it you come to know by talking to people so you use all these resources to try and understand the existing behavior and why it exists the way it is and then we look at behavior change and we say okay we want people to do another behavior instead of this behavior what's the ideal behavior and mm. how can i use what can kind of a nudge can i use to get people to try out that new behavior mm-hmm. and we generally do that through interventions and then we measure it through experiments so since you mentioned bias can you share an example of uh, what a bias might look like and there are a lot of examples so typical one would be if i ask you if i if i ask you a simple question i say jack is 6 feet 4 inches tall what is his favorite sport i'll say basketball yeah so i've done this in i i do a lot of workshops at grab and outside as well i've asked this question every single time and i've always received the same answer but jack could be tall and still like chess right mm-hmm. so what what our brain does is it uses something like a representative heuristic it says that okay tall people play basketball jack is tall he must like basketball mm-hmm. that's a typical example of our brain using a shortcut mm-hmm. to come to a conclusion it's not that shortcuts are always bad sometimes these shortcuts are useful because you can't go through day to day life every time thinking through every single decision so a lot of times these are actually useful the problem is when the bias misleads you in some way for example actually I'll, I'll, one way to visualize this would be a dartboard right so if you have a dartboard and you are hitting you don't know how to hit dart so you are hitting randomly 
that would be an example of me asking you jack is 6 feet 4 inches tall what's his favorite sport you say basketball somebody says chess somebody says football somebody says cricket that's darts going everywhere that's an error which is okay errors happen but when i say jack is 6 feet 4 and everybody says basketball that's an error but it's just hitting the dart in the wrong place so that's a bias so that's like a predictable error you know that everybody is going to be wrong in the exact same way Mm-hmm. to solve that problem you can do two things you can either move the dart board a little to the left so that people keep doing what they're doing but now they are actually hitting the center or you can shift their hand a little bit so that they continue the same motion but now they're hitting the right place so mm-hmm. that's basically what nudging is all about understanding the direction in which people are hitting and either moving the dart board or moving the people mm-hmm. there's like about 200 biases mentioned on wikipedia so is it possible that something that behavioral economists might consider a bias is completely rational decision okay absolutely that's what i was trying to say earlier as well i don't it's known that not all biases are bad sometimes we actually need these biases because you can't go through day to day life without some of these shortcuts so it's not true that all of those biases have to be misleading us in some way those biases exist for a reason it, it is for our survival so it's not like all of them are bad Mm-hmm. if everyone thinks differently how can uh, similar solutions be applied to a wide range of people actually no everybody so the biases that are normally documented are the ones that are exhibited by a large number of people so these are biases that exist everywhere everybody knows these are there everybody behaves in the same way only then do they actually get documented as biases mm-hmm. how frequently should you nudge someone to encourage like a positive reactance from a person there is no right answer to that because there are a lot of there are a lot of objections to nudging people too much which is fair people should not be nudged again especially if it is against their will and also that people get smart to nudges so when you do it often people know that you are nudging them so they may not even be ready to take the action that you want them to there are a lot of ethical concerns around nudging typically generally the kind of things you should ask yourself before you nudge somebody i think the one question you should definitely ask is if after you have done the nudge you tell the person that you actually did this would they be happy with it or would they be angry about it so if you tell somebody that hey i nudged you to eat snacks to eat healthier food maybe they might be happy about it but someone might say that you know what i actually wanted to eat unhealthy who are you to come and tell me that mm-hmm. i should be eating healthy so every time you are looking at nudging if you are looking for positive reactants this is the one thing you should definitely look at is the ethics of nudging and how much does the person actually want this action that you want them to do mm-hmm. but should that not defeat the purpose of a nudge my point wasn't that you should tell the person my point was think about what would happen if you actually told the person okay why is physics math perfect and economics math not because in physics math the uncertainties are lesser mm-hmm. in economics math the uncertainty is basically human beings mm-hmm. the biggest assumption that economics relies on is the assumption that human beings are rational mm-hmm. but that's not true we know that there are a lot of irrationalities that exist that makes economics not so right all the time 
but with physics a lot of these irrationalities can also be a lot of the imperfections can be measured and put in like some like friction can actually be measured and put into the equation but you can't always do that with economics mm-hmm. I mean, so see for things like affect and emotion mm-hmm. you can't really measure those and put those into an equation Mm-hmm. so uh, electrons and protons are going to behave exactly in all the conditions but people might behave differently exactly yeah so is every decision a bet at the end of the day a bet yeah oh that's a good question yeah i think so i mean most of the times people don't think through their decisions mm-hmm. but in the limited resources and the constraints of all the cognitive bandwidth that they have they are definitely taking a bet and thinking that they're going to they're making the right decision mm-hmm. how do you translate uh, the concepts of behavioral science into the world of technology well now there is the whole new upcoming field of behavioral design which basically takes into account the behavioral science behind somebody's behavior and bakes that into the design itself so earlier a few years ago maybe design was all about designing the perfect flow now it is about understanding how people actually behave and designing for that so a lot of things like some common examples you would have seen of behavioral design would be things like defaults uh, when you put a tick mark on a subscription and you know people mm-hmm. are not going to check against it yeah. that's basically behavioral design understanding that people already have this behavior that people don't check out of things so put a default tick mark so that's an example of uh, using behavioral science into design another example would be anchoring where you slash a price and you show a lower price because you know that people are going to look at that price and see the slash and they'll mm-hmm. be anchored to the previous amount and see think of this as a lower price also things such as like a, a price of 199 looks cheaper than exactly. a price of 200 yeah so what's your day to day role at grab like so at grab my work i have like two or three different types of work one of them is uh, <clears throat> working with the product and the design team directly so that work would typically be so whatever problem that they are trying to solve whatever product they are trying to create helping them understand that product from a consumer and a behavioral science point of view and helping them break down that flow uh, bringing in all the behavioral science principles so that even before they start designing they're aware of what consumer behavior is going to be like so they can design for that that's one part of it another part of it is fundamental research which is asking very basic questions about human behavior and answering those so that product design and marketing teams can take that up and use it later so you would ask very basic questions like why do people hate surge pricing or is ride hailing system fair to drivers something as basic as that but then building on that and creating a framework for product and design teams to think about and mm-hmm. innovate around that and then the third part of the work is generally experimentation which is using communications or designers base and running experiments on that to see which systems work which interventions work best for behavior change so since you brought up the notion of working with data and uh, you know figuring out hey if uh, why do people think that surge pricing is bad so how do you collect that data well, there are two parts of it one of it is the typical data that we have 
which is uh, your book through rates and at what price do people stop booking and at what price does the book through rate fall and that's the typical data that we already have that analytics teams look at mm-hmm. combine that with user research data so we usually uh, talk to consumers and we get people into the room and we speak to them and then we let them talk about their experiences and what they think about surge and we let them narrate instances of high surge and we try and pick out the typical kind of emotions that they spoke about and then we put both of them together and we create a framework to think about what could be like a typical psychological process that happens when surge pricing when they when people see surge prices i have two follow ups to that first of all how do you ensure that the sample is random meaning that the sample that you have is not biased so it's likely that people who are frequent users of your product might show up in your office for an interview but someone who hates your product might not show up so what do you think about that yeah that's definitely there there's always a selection bias but the couple of so the research team uh, usually takes care of this this is the user research team so what they generally do is they look at the people's data as well so they try and so we generally give some kind of a metrics and we say that we want users from these four five profiles so we try and pick people from different types of profiles so that we have all kinds of users and then within that they reach out to users and they talk to them so that's one the other thing is also that we don't just use this data but we also look at other things like social media listening and mm-hmm. what are people actually saying so a lot of the people who actually go online and complain the ones who really hate us so they are the ones who go online and complain so yeah. we usually pick a lot of stuff from there as well what are people saying and then we also have a voice of customer metric within grab which is through complaints and feedbacks and what are people actually talking about mm-hmm. so uh, a company like grab has operations in seven countries so if people think differently let's say in singapore and in philippines so has it happened that you have a different solution for philippines a different solution for singapore Yeah absolutely in fact we've seen like the cultural differences are so huge between these countries that we see like very big differences in how they actually look at the product and how they actually interact with the product one of the best examples for us has always been tipping so tipping as a culture actually doesn't exist in southeast asia in general and definitely not in singapore so when we used to so we were doing this study around promos and helping and trying to understand what people think about promos so when we asked people in singapore people would always be complaining and saying we want more promos grab used to give a lot more promos now they stop giving these discounts and stuff then we spoke to people in indonesia and jakarta surprisingly people there said yeah promos are good but every time i apply a promo i feel really bad for the driver because i feel like i'm not giving them enough so i tip them more so people use promos to reduce their cost but they actually end up paying more because they feel bad for the drivers and they tip them and we realized that tipping as a cultural norm is different in different countries people have different expectations from it and they have ex- different expectations from grab as well so when we launched tipping that was actually something that was taken into account that in a country like indonesia we might have a completely different use case as compared to singapore mm-hmm. you also mentioned experiments earlier can you elaborate a bit about that what experiments are and how do you perform experiments so experiments are typically when we divide the users into a couple of groups 
one will be a control group where we don't do any intervention then there'll be a treatment group where we try out something different maybe in content or design or communications or something and then we see how both the groups perform to see whether or not the treatment was actually more effective than the control so mm-hmm. examples would be things like so for example when we did the surge pricing study one of the things we realized was that people feel like grab is not transparent about the reasons behind surge and that we are not truthful about it which made sense because at one point our only statement used to be high fare due to high demand Mm-hmm. Uh, and this would also show up at one in the night when it wasn't actually true. There's no demand. The reason the fare was high was because uh, there were no cabs around. Mm-hmm. So then we made a whole product around contextual communications, where it takes into account various signals. And when there is a surge price, it tells you the price based on uh, what kind of context actually exists. So mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, the message that would go out now would say, "Your Batman driver is arriving for you," to tell you that it's the middle of the night. and that the reason why the fare is high is because the few drivers around and the ones who are coming are actually doing you a favor by doing that so we had a bunch of these different messages so we had a control group where we would just we had no messages this is the standard high fare due to high demand and to the other group we had these different messages and then in the end we ran a survey to see how people actually see the transparency of grab and we realized that the treatment group actually genuinely felt that we were way more transparent about our prices so how do you decide if something is not working out so there is no difference between the control and the treatment groups then you know that the impact of the intervention is not high enough mm-hmm. then like is every decision that people can make like is it does it boil down to doing experiments on scale not every decision can be done that way although it would be awesome if we could do that but experimentation is expensive as well because it means that you you've already put in money into the product so we try and limit experimentation to communications and content stuff mm-hmm. but uh, much of the design that happens before that stage is not based on experiment it's based on research and theory and then we take a bet on it and we design mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on unintended consequences of technology as in when a habit forming product becomes addictive yeah i mean there's a lot of work around that i'm not much of an expert to talk on that but yeah you're i mean even from like somebody who uses technology a lot i can definitely vouch for that that a lot of tech companies have used some of these irrationalities in the wrong way and they they had too much time to build on that and build these habits in a way but now i think companies are becoming smarter and customers are becoming even more smarter so companies are being forced to relook at what kind of habits they're driving so companies like apple and even uh, google are now bringing in things like digital wellbeing so that they're able to tell customers about their good intentions so that it's not always the bad thing that comes out digital wellbeing came really late into the picture Actually, but by building the product no one thought about that exactly which is why one of the things that we have done at grab which i'm very proud of is that we actually have a ethical framework around nudging so mm-hmm. for any nudge that we bring in we try and answer these questions so that we are sure that we are not nudging people the wrong way and we've done a lot of work around that whether it is the ethics of nudging whether it is fairness so we've created these checklists that 
the design and the product teams can use and they can actually ask these questions and make sure that they're on the right side of the line so if there's anything that's on the wrong side we try and speak to like within the team we try and talk and we decide whether or not it's worth whether the monetary benefit from that is worth the whatever ethical line that we are crossing and if it's not then we scrap it or we think of ways in which this can actually be done in an ethical way mm-hmm. we talked earlier about being and thinking that hey if you're nudging too much is is it ethical or not so what are your thoughts on transparency instead if tech companies justify a decision behind a notification or something is that what we should do going forward transparency is one is probably one of the ways in which you can help customers decide whether or not they should trust us it mm-hmm. it is definitely one of the important ways you should definitely at least at grab we've been trying that a lot being more transparent with boat driver with drivers passengers as well as merchants to tell them what's happening in the system and why they're seeing what they're seeing that's one way but i also think that that can't be the only way like just because you're transparent doesn't mean you can still get away with a lot of stuff so mm-hmm. while you are being transparent you still need to take into account the fact that consumers are depending on you and there are many other things that you have to think about when you are nudging them how different is uh, theory from practical applications mm, some of them are like human truths so the theory is as good as the application and it's good that these theories exist because you can apply them directly but a lot of them are like we were talking earlier a lot of them come without a cultural context a lot of the behavioral science studies have been done in the western country so they're they're typically done on a it's called a weird audience which is i think western educated industrialized mm-hmm. so basically it's done on a particular most of the studies have been done on a particular type of audience mm-hmm. and when that study is probably replicated in another cultural context it may fail completely so that's why the experimentation part is important knowing that the theory exists but then putting into application and experimenting is the right way to actually do it now i want to instead pivot on the covid situation so what do you think is going to be the new normal like i don't know but so many people have been asking me about this that i feel like i should have an answer prepared for this now mm-hmm. it's going to be so there are a few things that will definitely change in terms of human behavior people are going to be way more health conscious people are going to i think the amount of time people are spending at home will probably change a lot of the norms in terms times in terms of how they'll go out when they'll go out whether they're okay eating out and a lot of consumer behavior changes will definitely happen yeah. people will also be probably be more risk averse for a while at least till they feel like things are back to normal we will see people taking much less risks whether it is a travel whether it's an adventure whether it's with business i think people are going to for a while at least we should be prepared for a very subdued world i think mm-hmm. so why do we respond more to fear well i think that's something when that we spoke about initially which is the flight or fight response fear mm-hmm. is what gets us to respond really fast mm-hmm. and fear is also something that comes up really fast so when people do a risk appraisal the second they realize that they are susceptible to a risk and 
they feel like they don't have a control over it or they don't know what they can do or even if they do something it will not result in something effective the first reaction is fear which is what happened in this case which is what happens in the case of natural disasters and stuff where you know that this exists you are susceptible but you can't do anything about it it's out of your control that's when the fear reaction comes in what can governments do to maintain social distancing and enforce good habits on people after the lockdown i think governments are already doing a lot but at this point the only thing they can do i think they they've covered the whole spectrum they've gone from advisory all the way to punishment now i think one of the things that some of the governments are doing really well is around uh, communicating it the right way i think that is the important part so there are four three or four principles that from like looking at different communication in different countries have used so there are three or four principles that come out one of them is transparency governments have been trying to be very transparent whether it is singapore government sending whatsapp messages with complete details about cases or every government now has a dashboard where they're being very transparent about cases and information i think that's very important because it builds trust and gives people the confidence to know that okay this is happening and the government is doing these steps to ensure that we're okay so transparency is the first thing the second is shared value i think the one thing that everybody is aware of now is that this is an us versus an unknown situation we know so everybody's in this together and all governments have been actively doing that if you see the speeches by the indian prime minister he's been consistently saying that we're in this together it's the same across the world i think everybody has been using this consistent message of us versus them so that whole idea of shared value that it doesn't matter which place you're from it doesn't matter how much money you have we are all in this together and we are sort of sharing this experience so that's one the third would be around social norms telling people what others are doing so that they know that that's the right thing to do so 99% of people are following the lockdown or most people are staying at home if you're not then you're the one who's a risk to the others i think that's another important part which has come out in a lot of government communication which is putting forward social norms and telling people the norm that others are following and the last would be around self image so this is something that generally works which is reminding people of the self image they have of themselves so at this point the self image everybody has is that they are responsible people and it's others who are causing the problem so reinforcing that and reminding people that as responsible citizens this is what you should be doing i think that's the part that a lot of governments are focusing on now communicating and speaking to the self image that people have of themselves so these are like roughly the three four areas which i felt came out as strong positives in how governments are communicating around this should people use public transport now on or if government should encourage people to do so currently no but maybe once the situation is down then is okay then we'll face a different kind of problem that will be how do we get people back how do we make people realize that the risk is not there anymore and that it's okay for them to get back to normal and start using public transport and all other services i think that will be a different kind of challenge to solve mm-hmm. uh now i want to shift focus on priti as a person so uh, how do you unwind 
I keep doing a lot of things. So we started a podcast as well. Mm-hmm. So we started this in Jan this year. So some of my weekends go into that, working on the research for that and recording and marketing that and stuff. So that is something that I enjoy. In general, I really enjoy the subject. So I spend a lot of my free time as well, either reading mm-hmm. or doing this stuff. I consult for a few startups on a voluntary basis. So I do that as well. In terms of other stuff, I like playing the piano. So I do that. I like cooking. And I've been cooking a lot ever since the lockdown started. Yeah. So, yeah. But Singapore is apparently a food haven for otherwise. Yeah. It's good for non-vegetarians. But I'm a vegetarian. So I end up cooking most of the time. I mean, little India is a good place. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So what books are you reading right now? I am... I actually just started this book called... mindset it's by carol dweck it's about the growth and fixed mindset thing so that's as a research for my upcoming podcast so tell us a bit more about your podcast so the podcast is called the work brain and uh, it was started by me and another friend of mine a junior from uh, fms he stays in berlin and he's a management consultant So it actually started exactly a year back when we just connect actually I don't even know him personally we just connected on LinkedIn mm-hmm. and we had a couple of conversations and it seemed like an interesting thing to do so mm-hmm. we just we spent like a couple of months trying out different ideas what format works what doesn't and stuff and then finally we landed on the idea that we want to bring behavioral science to people in a way that they can relate to and actually apply in their day to day life mm-hmm. and that could be work related stuff that could be just how you can live better and stuff so that's how we started so now what we try and do is we pick a random topic in behavioral science and then we research on that and then the podcast generally is like a conversation between us where i come in as somebody who's coming from behavioral science background and he comes in as a management consultant and between us we break down a behavioral science topic and then we try and understand the applications of it for day to day life and what are you curious about next i am curious as a behavioral scientist this is a very exciting time to be alive because the whole world is going through so much of behavioral changes i am very curious to know where we are going to be in six to nine months from now what are the behavior changes that will happen and what will be permanent what will not be permanent and uh, what will be the personality changes that will happen what will be the cultural changes that will happen and how will that impact the rest of our lives i'm very curious to know that if someone has to learn more about behavioral science how can they do so there are a lot of resources on online now there are a lot of good books we could a good starting point for anybody is obviously thinking fast and slow but uh, it's a heavy book so if you are dedicated then you get through that somehow and then there are a bunch of other books out there books by danny really by taylor mm-hmm. there are a lot of good books out there for the subject and mm-hmm. a lot of good podcasts as well nudge is a great book i would say yeah nudge is a very good book yeah what different career options are available in this book so from what i have seen it's a very new field so very hard to predict anybody's career path on this but from what i have understood there are like two or three rough areas one of them is behavioral science which works with product and design so that will be like behavioral design that's typically in the tech space 
the second one would be behavioral science in marketing which works more with marketing teams to understand consumer behavior and then putting it directly into advertising and marketing so that's one space and the third one is around behavioral decision science which would be a combination of behavioral science and data science so that actually works more on model on modeling human behavior and then using that directly in algorithms and stuff so at least from oh and the fourth one would be behavioral science in public policy which is working with governments and nonprofits and using behavioral science to design better public policy so these are the three or four areas that i could identify but i'm sure there are more out there so the masters degree that you have obtained is that like a generic thing which can be applied to a bunch of domains that you just mentioned it did not cover the data science bit at all but it does cover marketing public policy and the generic stuff as well mm-hmm. what advice would you give to a 20 year old priti i would probably tell her to not be too concerned about career at that point because you never know where it will go like i never thought i'll be a behavioral scientist in singapore and grab when i was 20 so i would definitely at that point it seemed like engineering and mba was everything and that i had it all sorted so mm-hmm. i would definitely tell 20 year old myself to not be too bothered about career mm-hmm. i think you uh, should just be bothered about learning new stuff and doing new things i mean it's always interesting in the hindsight that uh, yeah uh and and lastly if uh, if people have to reach out to you and learn more about you how can they do so i am available on linkedin mm-hmm. if you look up preeti ks i should be there i am also quite active on twitter I share a lot of stuff there the my id would be preeti_please so mm-hmm. I, both of these are like available and you can dm me anytime there mm-hmm. thank you so much preeti for being a guest on the podcast and i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did absolutely you made me think about so many things that i haven't thought about in so long so thank mm-hmm. you for having me over i think this was fun